0: Let's turn, if you would, to John in the 7th chapter, John's Gospel, chapter 7. In John 7, we find Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. The time is late September, early October. This is the season of grape and olive harvest. During the Feast, the Jews would build for themselves little makeshift shelters of light branches and leaves, which they sometimes slept in. They put them up on their rooftops. And these would commemorate the migratory lives of the Hebrews as they exited Egypt and went out into the wilderness. Thus far in John, we have seen a rising tide of opposition against Jesus. And although John 7 brings us about one third of the way through John's gospel, chronologically, we are entering the last six months. Of Jesus' life. Verse 1 relates that Judea was a dangerous place for Jesus. There were Jews who sought to murder him already. Verse 5 relates that Jesus' brothers had not yet embraced him. Mindful of his own safety, Jesus did not initially journey with his brothers down to the feast, but he came about the middle of the feast. And in verse 11, we learn that even before his arrival, there were Jews who were actively searching him out. Verse 12 indicates that many rumors about Jesus were circulating all around Jerusalem. And in verse 13, we learn that those rumors were kept quiet, doubtless for fear of the Roman overlords. And then in verses 14 through 24, which we explored last week, Jesus arrived in Jerusalem and began teaching in the temple. And the Jews were actually stunned by his teaching, since Jesus had never been formally trained by an approved rabbi. And Jesus' response in verse 16 was actually to credit God himself with his learning. And that claim did not sit so well with many of the Jews. Jesus also pointed out that the Jews were wrong for resisting his miracles, particularly the miracle of the healing of a lame man back at the Pool of Bethesda. This is from a previous trip to Jerusalem. We read of that back in John chapter 5. So in the passage, there is this tension that is just boiling, and it's ready to boil over. And that brings us to verse 25. And following where some of the Jerusalem residents appear ready to acknowledge that Jesus might indeed be the Christ. However, before reading verse 25, let's actually leap ahead to the climactic moment in the passage. A moment that comes on the last day of the feast. It's found in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. And that was an astonishing, if bewildering, statement that divided the Jewish crowds. Verses 40 through 41 tell us the response. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? And that is the moment of decision that we are headed towards. But for today, we need to examine the controversy that just leads up to this climactic statement in verse 27. And that controversy is found from verses 25 through verse 36. Now, if you'll recall from last week, the discussion between, the G, between Jesus and the Jews centered on the Sabbath. But that Sabbath issue now, just as it happened in John 5, is going to recede into the background. And the deeper question of Jesus' identity is going to come front and center. If you're looking at an ESV, the heading reads, Can this be the Christ? What follows is genuine confusion and consternation concerning who Jesus is. Who is this guy? So let's read, beginning with verse 25, and we'll include also verse 26. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, "'Is not this the man whom they seek to kill?' And here he is, speaking openly." And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Well, I suppose that every parent has had the embarrassing experience of a child innocently revealing a family secret. You know what I'm talking about. Your seven-year-old said, what? You told what to your friends? Well... Here, the Jerusalem crowds are betraying a family secret of the Jerusalem authorities. And that is this. They have an agenda. An agenda to silence Jesus. An agenda to kill Jesus. Now, it's likely the Jews, making their pilgrimage from Galilee and other parts of the Roman Empire, knew very little about how controversial Jesus really was down in Jerusalem. But, of course, the local Jews know and they are not slow to point out the obvious. For several months, a foul scheme was afoot to murder Jesus. And this scheme had been whispered through alleyways and behind closed doors until everyone knew it. Gossip is not actually a modern invention. To gossip, all you need to do is tell people something in confidence. And the matter will confidentially spread far and wide. You know what I'm talking about, right? I'll tell you this in confidence, and pretty soon everybody knows in confidence. That's what's going on here. And that gossip leads to speculation. Maybe the Jerusalem authorities know that Jesus really is the Christ. That's verse 26. Can it be that the authorities know? They know who this guy really is? However, this bold assertion is quickly dismissed. Verse 27, But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So, could Jesus really be the Christ? Further discussion just rules out that possibility. The Jews claim that since they know where Jesus came from, he can't possibly be the Christ. Well, how had they arrived at this conclusion? The Jews had, in fact, studied the Old Testament looking for all the clues they could find concerning the coming Messiah. The Jews did anticipate a Messiah, a Christ, would come. They were, in fact, looking for a Messiah precisely because the Old Testament said a Messiah is coming. So they're not wrong to look for a Messiah. And we know from a variety of sources, including the Old Testament, that the Jews believed that the Messiah would come in certain ways. Actually, later in the passage, we're told the Jews understood that the Christ would come from Bethlehem, which, of course, He did. They also believed that the Messiah would be a flesh-and-blood human being. This is what the ancient sources tell us. He's going to be a flesh-and-blood human being. They are looking for a man. However, the Jews also believed the Messiah would come in a way that was initially very secretive. He would be unknown, and then suddenly He would appear like a flash of lightning and descend into Jerusalem. He would come abruptly onto the scene and affect Israel's redemption. According to the popular theories... No one would actually know the true identity of the Messiah. And then suddenly, like lightning streaking across the night sky, he would make himself known. He would go out and he performed tremendous signs. Now, the Old Testament had not said that precisely, but the Jews had developed this notion about him. And Jesus himself seems to acknowledge this popular theory in the Olivet Discourse. We won't turn there, but describing Jewish expectations over in Matthew 24, this is what we read. Jesus said, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, He is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, He is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus is alluding to those popular conceptions. Well, will Jesus show up this way? Will the Messiah show up this way? Like lightning streaking out of the east. Will he appear abruptly? If that is the case, then how could Jesus possibly be the Messiah? That's the question they're asking. The fact is, we know his family. We met some of them earlier in John 7. Jesus is this ordinary Galilean who has brothers and sisters. How could he be the Messiah? There's nothing really flashy or mysterious about Jesus. How could a poor Galilean prophet be the true Messiah who is going to burst suddenly into Jerusalem? Now, of course, the Jews are mistaken about how the Christ, the Messiah, would appear, at least in his first appearance. But Jesus was not about to concede to their mistaken assumptions quite the opposite, and he proceeds to emphasize the pedestrian quality of his ministry, I am, in fact, a very ordinary person. Look at the first half of verse 28. Here's his response. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. If you're looking for some hidden Christ to appear suddenly and to commence his rule in Jerusalem, well, that's not me. You know me. You know who I am. You know I'm from Galilee. You know I'm from Nazareth. However, the Jews don't know as much about Jesus as they'd like to think. So Jesus will quickly clarify something about his true identity in the second half of verse 28 and verse 29. But I have not come on my own accord, he says. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Well, let's put all that together. On the one hand, Jesus acknowledges, yes, you know where I come from. You know me. Then again, you are clueless as to my true origins. And Jesus will exploit their ignorance of his true identity as the Son of God sent from the Father. In John's Gospel, the phrase, He who sent me, is a standard reference to God the Father. That's who Jesus is referring to, God the Father. Jesus claims that he was sent from God. He is no mere wandering prophet from Galilee, he's actually sent from God the Father and the Jews don't understand. Now observe here the very crucial link between knowledge of Jesus and knowledge of God. Jesus always puts these two together. To know one is to know the other. Jesus says he knows God. Why? Because he's from God. And that ought to be obvious to anyone. If you're from God, then you must know God. But look at the contrast between Jesus and the Jews in terms of their knowledge of God. Jesus says of the Jews at the end of verse 28, Him you do not know. Well, if ever there was a people who claimed to know God, it was the Jews. We know God. The Jews had the revelation of God at Sinai. It had been inscripturated in their holy text. The Jews had the great prophets of old who had revealed God to the nation. The Jews of all people assume, yeah, we know God. But Jesus says quite the opposite. Him you do not know. That is an amazing statement given to people who memorize the Old Testament. You do not know God. Well, how did they fail to know God? Answer, because they did not recognize Jesus as coming from God. If you don't recognize me, you don't know God. To know God is to know the one whom he has sent. And friends, this is a theme that just keeps on showing up in John's Gospel Back in John 6, for instance, Jesus claimed, quote, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, if you've been taught by God, you will come to me. If God is your teacher, you will embrace Jesus. Later in John 14, Jesus berates his own disciples, Philip in particular, who wants to understand, well, who's the Father? And Jesus says, have I been so long with you, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Again, this is a theme that just keeps on showing up in John's Gospel. To know the Father is to know Jesus. To know Jesus is to know the Father. And to fail to know and embrace Jesus, friends, is truly to fail to know God. Jesus is the pinnacle revelation of God. And that's what Jesus is emphasizing in verses 28 and 29. He who comes to me is true, I'm sorry, he who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. And I want to pause here for just a moment, because we are, caught, we are coming up on another election in our country. And perhaps it would be very good, again, to emphasize, as I have previously the need to be very discerning when politicians talk about God. When anyone talks about God. How would you know whether someone knows the God of the Bible? Many, many Americans are a little different than the Jerusalem Jews in their confused knowledge of God. I mean, everybody talks about God in our country, right? They embrace God without embracing Jesus They embrace, in God we trust, without embracing Jesus Christ, whom God sent. And their thinking is rooted in a popular Enlightenment movement called deism. Deism. I want to take a little digression in the deism. We've done this before. I want to take a little different approach today, though. Deism is a worldview that accepts God as creator, but denies God's further involvement in the world after His creation. God made everything, sure. We don't know how I got here without God. God made everything, but He's just let it all run since He hasn't got involved. That means that a deist would reject the inspiration of the Bible by God's Spirit. God doesn't get involved in that way. Deists would reject the incarnation of God in Jesus. Jesus was an ordinary human being, not God. And deists, of course, will reject the work of the Holy Spirit in human hearts because God doesn't get involved in His creation. That's the spirit of deism. And deism actually erupted in our own country in the years preceding the first great awakening. It denied the Spirit worked miraculously to awaken sinners to the gospel. This was the worldview that the Great Awakening preachers like Jonathan Edwards had to contend with. Edwards spent much of his ministry combating the deists who denied that it was really the Spirit who brought about the Great Awakening because God doesn't get involved, right? And friends, deism, various forms of it, have been, has been profoundly influential throughout the duration of American history. When people talk about God as our Creator and even as our Judge... Because the deists do believe that God is the judge, but refuse to acknowledge Jesus as our Redeemer, or the Holy Spirit as the one who indwells us, that's deism. And American history is really replete with examples of people who aspire for high office using the rhetoric of deism. Christians have been misled for years by the deistic spirit of the age in America, Many years ago, I visited a Christian college in another state, and along one corridor in the administration building was a picture of every American president, and beneath was a statement that he had made about God. And the presentation created this impression that America has always been a Christian nation because all of our presidents were Christians. And you're saying, are we we really that gullible? A deist proclaims, in God we trust. He dresses up his speeches with flowery language about God, our Creator, and language about God blessing America. That's all very well and good. I love for God to bless America. Don't get me wrong, but who is this God that you're talking about? Who is He? What about Jesus? Tell me whether you believe that Jesus Christ is God. Do you believe the words of Jesus in verse 29? I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Did Jesus come from the Father to reveal the Father? Do you believe that Jesus died and rose again to restore you to the Father? If you deny the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, John and his epistles has a word to describe you. The word is Antichrist. Antichrist. And John says already right in the first century, there are many Antichrists. An Antichrist is someone who denies the Incarnation. He insists four times that if you deny the Incarnation, you are Antichrist. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus, here's what he said, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Friends, deism is the spirit of the age that invokes God while denying Jesus Christ. And the preachers of the Great Awakening and the Second Awakening also had to contend with the likes of Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and Ethan Allen and Thomas Paine all of whom were deists, all of whom denied the deity of Jesus Christ. Those preachers insisted that mere platitudinous talk about God won't do. You must confess that Jesus Christ is from the Father. Well, friends, I wonder if this same spirit of conformity that we read about in Romans 12 is at work today, the same spirit of conformity to the spirit of the age. I want to use an illustration that I used back in September 20, 2020. I went back and looked at my notes, and I was really, really curious to use this illustration, and I went back this week. I thought I should use that again. So forgive me if this sounds all too familiar. But back when we were in Romans 12, when we were talking about conformity conformity to the age, I use this illustration. I searched the transcripts from both the 2020 Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Convention. I just did a a search find. I just pulled up all the transcripts and looked through them. And Here's what I found. This is not a thorough academic study, all right? This is a search find on my computer. All right, over the course of four evenings in the DNC, there were approximately 62 references to God. 62 references to God. In the Republican National Convention, there were 155 references to God. A huge number of those references were the repeated phrases, God bless you, and God bless America. In the DNC, as I searched the transcripts, there were two references to a man named Jesus. So you got 62 references to God, two references to Jesus. And both references came from the first night from pastors who prayed in Jesus' name, and I'm thankful they did. The high-profile politicians, celebrities, and the vice presidential and presidential candidate never mentioned Jesus. In the RNC, there were seven references to Jesus. So again, 155 references to God, And seven references to Jesus. Here they are. A woman who owned a coffee shop in Montana mentioned Jesus. Another woman prayed in the name of Jesus. A male ex-convict told of coming to faith in Jesus in prison. And I'm very grateful. Kaylee McInany, former White House press secretary, Said that Jesus Christ stood with her through surgery. She had been diagnosed with cancer, and she was very bold in her acknowledgement that Jesus Christ stood with her, and I was very grateful for that. A Roman Catholic nun invoked the name of Jesus as an embryo to defend the right of the unborn. Franklin Graham prayed in the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior. Thank you, Mr. Graham. And Ben Carson referenced Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Those are the seven references to Jesus. Other than Carson, high-profile politicians, celebrities, and the vice presidential and presidential candidate never mentioned Jesus. Former Vice President Mike Pence, whom a narrator identified as a follower of Jesus Christ, and there seems to be some good evidence that, yes, indeed, Mr. Pence, is a believer. The narrator introduced him as the follower of Jesus Christ, but he himself didn't mention Jesus. And in fact, he appeared to alter the language of Hebrews 12 by substituting the American flag, old Glory for Jesus. Hebrews says, quote, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Mr. Pence said, let's run the race marked out for us. Let's fix her eyes on old glory and all that she represents. Now, friends, I am really, truly grateful that there do seem to be some genuine followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, even among high-profile politicians and even celebrities in our country. I'm very grateful for them. In fact, I was speaking with a high school friend this last week, and his children have come through the university, and I've had them in classes, and One of them graduated and she went on to work for Senator Tim Scott, our own senator here from South Carolina, and uh, he was telling me that when his daughter worked for Tim Scott that he really had a very good testimony of his salvation in Christ uh, before uh, the the people that he employed, and so I am very, very grateful. And I want to also say that it's not my task to judge the hearts of men, that's not what I'm doing today. God God has committed all judgment to the Son, not to me, all right? But all that to say, it does seem that there's a pattern here that has a very long history in our country. Let the ordinary coffee shop owner, the ex-convict, the pastors, name the name of Jesus. That's great. But otherwise, just kind of keep Jesus out of politics. You can mention God 155 times. No problem there, right? But be careful about the name Jesus. Well, how do we know which God you're talking about? I mean, I really want to know, what God are you talking about? The deists believe in God. A Muslim can say, God bless America. A Muslim can say, God bless you, but who is he talking about? Jews, theological liberals can say, God bless you. But who are you talking about? Friends, what is it that distinguishes a Christian from a Muslim? Or a deist? And the answer is Jesus Christ. That's why we're called Christians. We follow Jesus Christ. Do you believe that God has revealed Himself specifically in Jesus Christ? I mean, that's where God made Himself known. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. That's what God the Father said. So when I walk down a hall of presidents in a Christian college, I want to know... How many of them embrace Jesus Christ as sent from God? Would Jesus say of any of those men the words at the end of verse 28? 28, 28, he who sent me is true, and him you do not know. He is saying this to people who believe in God. That's crucial. Jesus is speaking to people who believe in God, and Jesus is saying, you do not know him. So friends, if you think you know God but do not acknowledge that Jesus was sent from God, you do not know the true God. There's no way around this. So again, do you want to know whether you have conformed to the world? When we think about conformity to the world, we often have a little almost, shall I say, I don't know what's the right word. This isn't in my notes, all right? We tend to think, well, you know, how long is your hair? You know, how long is your skirt? These things are important. I get it, but really, conforming to the world—you want to know what that really looks like? It's somebody who says, "Look, I believe in God, but I'm not willing to name the name of Jesus." Let's talk about what's really, truly important here. Do you know God? Well, do you acknowledge the name of Jesus? All politicians talk about God. All politicians quote the Bible. It is politically expedient. Atheists comprise 3 to 4% of our population. No one is angling for their vote out there. But try clarifying that by in God we trust, you also mean, actually I mean, in Jesus we trust. And see how far that gets you. That's what conformity to the world looks like, failing to acknowledge Jesus. Instead of asking someone, do you believe in God, try asking them, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Put that question to somebody. And don't be deceived by the spirit of the age. Don't be misled by politicians, athletes, celebrities, performers, business magnates who talk about God while ignoring Jesus. Friends, the fact is our Christian brothers and sisters are being hunted down and martyred in Iran, in China, in Iraq, in places all over the globe today for naming the name Jesus Christ. They can say God all day long. That will not get them in any trouble. They name the name Jesus Christ and that's where the persecution comes. In our country, we have Christian celebrity figures and they get paid millions and they refuse to speak his name. Friends, these are not Christian heroes. These are people who have conformed to the spirit of Antichrist. It says, talk about God, but don't mention Jesus. That's the spirit of Antichrist. Cal Thomas, in his book Blinded by Might, argues that Christian leaders all too easily compromise the spiritual integrity of their faith when they are seduced by power. Oh, we can just kind of deny Jesus in order to get into power. Well, that is the spirit of Antichrist. And that was a very long digression, but I hope a helpful one. So what happens then when you identify Jesus with the Father? Well, what happened when Jesus identified himself with the Father? Keep reading, verses 30 to 31. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Well, what happens? Answer instantaneous division. There is division. When Jesus identifies with the Father, several set about immediately to arrest him, and others believe. This is what happens. You divide people. Now, this scene, we can only imagine, must have dissolved in some sort of chaotic brawl. Someone to lay hands on Jesus and drag him off to the authorities. Others must have stepped in and uh, came to Jesus' defense. Jesus must then have slipped out of the crowd. God's sovereign timing over his death had not yet come. Now, verse 31 tells us so that many people did, in fact, believe when they saw Jesus' signs. Now, just how sincere these would-be followers are, it's really difficult to say. On the one hand, faith in signs is not strongly encouraged in the Gospels. You have to go beyond just signs and really embrace Jesus. But certainly this is positive. Certainly this is better than disbelief. And so taken together, verses 30 through 31 reveal the response of the world to the revelation of God and Jesus Christ. It is divisive. Neutrality about Jesus is not an option. You can build a thriving ministry in America today, almost overnight in some places, and all you have to do is not talk about Jesus. Just talk about God. Really, seriously, you can build a ministry overnight. Just don't talk about Jesus. Just treat God like a genie in a bottle. He's there to make all your wishes come true. Just take a cue from Joel Osteen, right? Don't talk about Jesus or the need for an atonement. God's there to make you happy and wealthy. But friends, what about Jesus? The passage is clear. Neutrality is not an option. Now, we come to verses 32 through 36 then, and they relate the aftermath of Jesus' revelation of Himself as sent from the Father. And they take us right up to that climactic moment in verse 37, when Jesus invites all who thirst to come to Him. All right, so let's read verses 32 through 36. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest Him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to Him who sent Me. You will seek Me, and you will not find Me. Where I am, you cannot come." The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Well, in the first century, the temple guards served as a kind of police force in and around the massive temple complex here in Jerusalem. And they had a commanding officer, a man called the captain of the temple. And it's likely it's the same temple guard that was sent now to arrest Jesus. After news of the popular commotion had reached the ears of the chief priests and Pharisees. We read of that back in verse 32. They want to come and arrest Jesus. Now, some interpreters have actually doubted the legitimacy of this account because of the obvious collusion between the Pharisees and the chief priests, almost all of whom were Sadducees. Typically, these two groups didn't get along. All right, But we know better, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They are colluding here together because they have a common enemy in the person of Jesus Christ, such as their common hostility to Jesus that these estranged members of the Jewish leadership are coming together now And seeking to arrest Jesus. Now, John is a very clever writer. And he does not immediately tell us the outcome of this arrest attempt. In fact, we won't learn of the outcome until later on in the chapter. And the suspense really serves to highlight Jesus' response in verses 33 through 34. In these verses, Jesus again disrupts the Jews' messianic expectations. They expected their Messiah would burst suddenly into the world like a streak of lightning, right? He would chase off the Roman oppressors. He would establish his kingdom. But Jesus alludes cryptically to his cross and to his disappearance. What? That's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. In verse 33, he insists that his time is short and that he's returning to the Father. And we know from reading the rest of the story that Jesus will soon die. And he will resurrect and he will ascend back to where he was before. And guess what? You could have searched the length and the breadth of first century Israel and you would not find him. He's gone. Verse 34 tells us that where he's going, they cannot follow. What kind of Messiah is that? One you can't follow? But once again, the Jews betray their ignorance of Jesus' true agenda. They assume in verses 35 through 36 that Jesus is just simply going to leave Israel behind and He's going to go live among the Gentiles, He'll go live in some Greek region. He'll just disappear for a while. In the first century, there were Jews who had scattered all through the Roman Empire. Archaeologists, in fact, have located large first-century synagogues in numerous places all around the Mediterranean Basin. So the Jews assume, probably for safety reasons, well, Jesus is going to just flee Israel. He's going to go to some unknown location out there. But of course, they are badly misinterpreting Jesus' true intentions. Jesus intends to die. And Jesus intends to return to the Father. The Jews got it wrong. And yet for all that... They were not entirely wrong. Will Jesus actually go to the Jews dispersed of the Greek speaking world? Will Jesus actually go and teach the Greeks? Was the Jewish Messiah sent for more than merely Jerusalem and her Jews? Is there something more? Is there some ironic foreshadowing here in verse 35 that it's actually just lost entirely on these Jews? that maybe Jesus will go to the Greeks? Well, let's go ahead and read just briefly in the next week's passage. Look at verse 37. In the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst? let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Well, what on earth does that mean? That sounds like some sort of universal invitation to more than just the Jews. Whoever, a universal invitation for a flood of cleansing to anyone who comes. Keep reading, verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified Well, I think we know what this is referring to, do we not? We know the outcome. Jesus died. He left by way of the cross. And then He was glorified. And He went right up through the clouds to a throne. And that's why no one can lay a hand on Him here below. But in another sense... Jesus' gospel flowed like living water right out of Jerusalem. When Jesus was glorified, the Holy Spirit of Pentecost came, and it came flowing out of heaven like a flood of living water. And that Spirit of Pentecost carried the truths of Jesus across the empire to the Jews of the dispersion, to the Greeks, and to the ends of the earth. Now skip ahead momentarily to John chapter 12. And let's notice where this whole story is going. Let's notice in conclusion just one little detail that John cleverly weaves into his gospel. In John 12, Jesus' death is now imminent. Back in John 7, Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who sent me, all right? That was John 7 and John 12. We've come forward six months. The time of Jesus' departure has now come. And notice the text of verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come. And that's the hour he was referring to back in John 7. I'm with you a little longer, then I'm going to leave. The hour has come for what? For the Son of Man to be glorified. And how is he glorified? Actually, the glorification of Jesus begins with a cross. Keep reading. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come. I'm sorry, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And if we keep reading, we discover how it is that we follow Jesus Christ right out of this life through death and right into eternal life. That's where Jesus is going, through death into eternal life. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. When Jesus said back in John 7 that He was going away and they could not follow Him, He wasn't talking about disappearing into some Greek-speaking region of Israel. He was talking about His death and His subsequent exaltation. To follow Him means that we die and we resurrect with Him. But don't forget about the context of John 7. Is He going to the Greeks? Is he going to the Greeks? That's the question that they wanted an answer to. Well, as I say, there is some foreshadowing back in John 7. Look back at the immediate context that we're dealing with here in John 12. Look at verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Jesus' answer as to where he was going in this context was an answer given to the Greeks. He was telling the Greeks, not just the Jews, the Greeks, the way to eternal life. So put it all together, friends. The Jews are looking for a Messiah to appear suddenly like a bolt of lightning, abruptly He will come and He will save Israel. Well, can Jesus be that Messiah? Well, certainly not. We know where He comes from. But Jesus insists, no, no, you don't understand. I have come from God, and I am returning to God. And the Jews don't understand, so they scratch their head, they begin to ponder, well, is He going to go live with the Greeks? Go live with the Jews of the diaspora? And then Jesus dies, and He resurrects, and He returns to the Father. And suddenly, like a mighty rushing wind, Jesus' Spirit, the Holy Spirit, just comes flowing through Jerusalem. And this gospel flows from Jerusalem to the dispersion and through the empire and to the Greeks. It flows into the broader Mediterranean world, and from there to the ends of the earth. But, friends, let's be very certain that we understand what it means to embrace the good news of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? How do we keep from the spirit of deism? Whom did the Greeks seek? Look at the end of verse 21. Here's your answer Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we think of our nation today, a nation that is divided, a nation in turmoil, a nation continually looking for better answers in every new election, a nation looking for new economic solutions to our problems. And Lord, we look at the world around us. And Lord, people trying to find answers to their questions, worshiping gods. Lord, our world needs your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that today would be a day that your Spirit works, that your Spirit works in assemblies all over this country, all around the world and really convicts people of sin, draws people to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that people will be willing to name His name today. to name, the name of Jesus Christ. And we pray it all for Christ's sake. Amen.